friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. We have this week what we hope is a great show for you. We focus on foster care and adoption at the bottom of the hour. You all know from many, many times that I've spoken about it that adoption, a very beautiful experience in the life of my family and something that we hold very, very close to our hearts here on Conversations. But first, we talk with Carrie Solomon. He is a Catholic producer and director, uh, as well as a writer, of a new movie that's out in theaters right now called Nefarious. It's a supernatural thriller inspired by the best-selling book A Nefarious Plot about the epic battle between good and evil, and it's a psychological thriller. He has assured me that it's not terribly scary, it's mostly psychological, but it's it's a wonderful Catholic movie that doesn't pull any punches when it... um, It exposes the role of malevolence that we know is out there and trying to ruin us. Endorsed, the movie was endorsed by Cardinal Raymond Burke. Um, Hopefully Cardinal Burke will be on our show very soon. He has promised to make a little time for us, which is wonderful. Carrie Solomon, um, who we're gonna talk to right now, also um, directed the movie Unplanned. Welcome to the show, Carrie. Uh, Thanks for having me. Well, I'm very excited to have you on. I really like it on, on our show, Conversations with Consequences, when we cover movies and other things that are in the popular culture, because I feel very strongly it's, it's a huge mistake to cede the, the culture of entertainment to the other side, <laughs> as it were, and not to have a strong presence. And when I say us, I mean people of faith, people of traditional values, people who understand that there is a God and that there are certain ways we should um, live in accordance to that. Um, so I wonder, I'm wondering if that is something that you feel strongly about, too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, I think that's what really matters. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, I think the media is the most powerful tool that is in the world. There's a reason why Stalin and Hitler and Lenin all said the person who controls the movie theaters will control the world. Additionally, I think uh, TV, uh, now especially, you know, people are programmed by TV. So, mm-hmm. and the left and those people that hate God or are just not traditional in any way or form or not conservative, uh, they're using it as a tool against us. And so I think it's a, it's a terrible situation that we're in. And I couldn't agree with you more. It was incredibly foolish for us to cede authority and cede control of the entertainment business. Well, during COVID, I have to admit, uh, when we were shut down in Miami and in, in Florida, where I live, it wasn't very long. But still, I didn't, I didn't have any work for a few weeks. And I watched too much TV. I watched too many shows. And I, I, I felt a little poisoned by the experience. Um, I felt that I was watching things that were doing me harm, things that normalized behaviors and ideas in an insidious kind of way, where they were presenting things, uh, situations, relationships that I knew were wrong, but always in a, but when, it, when they were wrong, they were always presented in a very positive, 
positive way with music that uh, you know lifts up your heart and 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 I got this I, I got this impression that it was very insidious and it was almost on purpose that there's a mind behind it uh, sort of a, maybe a hive mind what do you think am I was am I exaggerating oh I can tell you that there's definitely a mind behind it it's demonic not only is the adversary the devil uh, in control of Hollywood and the media, there are forces within Hollywood. Now, look, I, I work every day in Hollywood, so I can tell you right now that there are things that go on Hollywood that would absolutely blow away the average American. I mean, there would be riots in the streets if Americans really knew the evil that goes on in Hollywood. And the agenda is not going to stop, which is one of the reasons we made the movie. Uh, you know, I felt the Lord called us to make this movie. And basically what it does, it drags the devil out of the darkness into the light and shows people, look, God is not the enemy of mankind. He's the savior of mankind. The devil is the enemy of mankind. And the devil is totally prosperous in the media. I mean, it doesn't take, I mean, if you're not paying attention, even if you're not paying attention, it's gotta be obvious to people that the media is totally controlled. They're not even reporting anymore on anything that happens if it's outside their agenda. Mm -hmm, that's true. And I th and I think the worst target is what they're trying to do with children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I it's mean, it's almost terrible. Uh, it's incomprehensible, right? When I mean, I'm a parent. Maybe you're a parent too. Yeah. The one thing that that I'm 100% sure of uh, in this material world is that the purity of our children should be maintained and protected. And when I see attacks against that, which I'm seeing every single day from all directions, I do think that there's a huge element of the demonic, the, of that, that, male, that malevolent intent behind all of it. Of course. I mean, first off, if you look at all the things that are happening now and you go biblically into the Bible, the Bible warns that there will come a time when men will be think, when women will will dress and be men and men will be like women, that good will be called bad and bad will be called good and that there will be, and, and throughout prophetic words and throughout the, the decades, we've been told that they're after to destroy the family, to destroy the children, and to destroy the family unit. What more do we need when the mutilation of children is going on? When people are rioting in the streets because we're not allowed to kill children uh, through abortions. And now, in many states, they can be born and alive, and now they're not even making, they're not even hiding the agenda anymore. Now, they just say, no, we should be able to kill a baby if it's breathing, if it's, it's hard, it's beating, if it's been born. We should have a choice. We, you know, because choice is important. No, it's not. Not when it comes to murder. Well, choose. You know, the people who propose things. choice as the highest uh, good, they seem to invariably choose death, which is such uh, a non. It's such an anti-human, and not just against human, but outside of the human experience, where life has always been a, at a premium. It doesn't matter what culture or what time in the world history, life has always been seen as the highest. Um, the, the highest thing one can attain, right, is a is a fulfilling and and full life. What do you say? I, I mean what do you say? Yeah. So, so in your movie, let's get to your movie. Nefarious is is a psychological thriller with elements of the divine, of the demonic, um, and in a way that. Well, tell us, tell us, how do you present the demonic in the, in your movie, Nefarious? Well, first off, uh, the average person is going to be scared of the movie because they're going to look at the poster and they're going to see what looks to them like a demonic, satanic movie. We did that on purpose because basically we believe that the youngsters today are drawn. People are drawn to the demonic occult horror movies. This is not something to be scared of, however. 
on our movie. We use the poster to bring people in and then show them the truth. So, and it's been successful, uh, very successful so far in that respect. But I can assure everyone that's listening that there's nothing demonic, nothing satanic. There's no bad language. There's no sex. There's nothing like that. This is two guys in a room. Think uh, Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins from Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. having a having a conversation. So it is a psychological thriller. You're not going to see anything, you know, heads turning and puking green pea soup and people walking on the wall. It's not that kind of movie. Uh, what it is, is it's uh, a prisoner who basically is going to be executed. A serial killer is going to be executed. And his psychiatrist kills himself, which brings all the findings about the serial killer into question. The state will not execute someone unless they're sane. So what the state does is they bring in a uh, progressive liberal psychiatrist who's very smart, very good looking, very well dressed, is very good at what he does. But he's also an atheist. Mm -hmm. So you have an atheist that comes into the prison and meets with the serial killer. And the serial killer surprises him by telling him. I'm a demon. So obviously the psychiatrist believes that he's saying that to prove that he's crazy. That way he won't be executed. He's very smart. But we go back and forth, back and forth. And then the serial killer also tells him, before you leave here today, you will you will have killed, uh, you have committed three murders. And so, which actually does play out. So it's a very interesting setup and it's a very interesting movie. But the thing it really does, it brings truth. It shows the truth of what's going on in the world today. And it lets people who are especially lukewarm on the idea of the devil understand that there is a devil. There is a devil behind all of it. He's behind the curtain. But we pull him out of the, you know, we pull the curtain aside and we show his machinations and what he does. And I think uh, audiences across the country have been fascinated with it. And we're seeing tremendous reactions. People going seven, eight, nine times to the movie and bringing all their family and their friends. So it's been fantastic so far. Uh, but that's basically what it's about. Carrie, when I was six or seven years old, I, I went to my mother and I asked her a very serious question. I said, Mommy, is the devil real? Because I had heard about the devil from my friends. And she looked me right in the face and she said, yes, the devil is real. And it. It, it shocked me so much because, of course, my mother was always going to tell me the truth, right? I believe, I, right. I believed, and I still believe in what my mother tells me to this day. But children aren't growing up like that. They're not being told that there is that there is a force of malevolence that is is work is trying to to work on you and is trying to get under your skin and and into your thoughts. And it's and it's maybe not. Um, of course, it's not the, that image of the, the devil with horns, but it but it's very real and people become subject to it. Is that the kind of thing that your movie is trying to point out? Of course. But, you know, today, if that same conversation was said today, the mommy would say, don't be silly. There's no such thing as the devil. There's mm-hmm. no such thing as evil. They don't even believe in evil. Yes, and exactly. the me- And the media, the media propounds, they pound this away that there's no such thing that man is man has got to evolve from this primitive superstition, superstition called Christianity. And these values that conservatives and Christians have are just ridiculous. We need to be able to do whatever we want. We need to be able to do it whenever we want. We need to be able to do all these things because that's why we've been born. Well, that is literally the first uh, the first commandment in the demonic Bible. Do what thou wilt. It is the whole of the law. Mm-hmm. And and so when 
when people say these things, it just they're literally sentencing their children, their families and their lives to eternal darkness. I mean, it's crazy. I mean, look around that, you know, I, I have one of the, the, the most profound things that was ever told to me was uh, about the devil when I was younger. And uh, this man said to me, a very wise man said to me, if you don't believe in the existence of the devil, declare war against him and see what happens. <laughs> yeah, and, he'll, and he'll come out shooting this, and, and with nuclear and, bombs against you. <laughs> yeah, and, and so when we did this movie, we declared war against the devil and we had all kinds of demonic manifestations that occurred. I mean, just crazy amounts of stuff. Um, I mean, I even had to have an exorcist on set and his appendix exploded and he almost died. I mean, we had car crashes. We had buildings being ripped to pieces. I'll give you an example real quick. Father Carlos Martins, who's probably the premier exorcist, Catholic priest exorcist in America, uh, basically was at my premiere and we were doing a press junket. And while we were filming, the lights in the room started to flick on and off. And they wouldn't stop and we couldn't control the lights. Now, when you're filming, you know, you just can't you can't have that happen. Mm -hmm. The sound mixer went dead. The, the, the cameras, the digital discs got corrupted. And there were and I am not kidding. Voices and noises coming out of the couches. So I called the father up, the priest, the exorcist. And I said, I think we got a problem here. He comes into the room with his holy water and his his prayers and so on. And he says, I know exactly what this is. He walks across the room, puts his back to the window and he's five stores up, floors up. There's nothing outside the window. But suddenly behind his right ear, there's a female demonic voice chanting in his ear. And to try and stop him from basically doing the prayers, or at least I presume he goes into the prayer in Latin, and when he gets to the part where it says, behold now the mighty and terrible name of Jesus, the voices in the couch stop, the flicking in the room stops, the voice behind his ear stops, uh, flees, and, and everything works. Oh, my gosh. Now, now, you tell me, is that a coincidence? I don't think so. Okay, and this is just tip of the iceberg. We have had demonic manifestations on this project. You know, you've heard about this. People have heard about this. And yet, why doesn't anyone believe this? They, you know, they love people who are obsessed with the demonic, but they're obsessed with the fact, oh, the devil is real. The devil is real. But they're looking to get power or favor from the devil. Let me explain. You never get power or favor from the devil. What you get is damnation from mm -hmm. the devil. And slavery. And slavery, and eventually you will be his slave. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you know, doing Reiki and yoga and tarot cards and Ouija boards and horoscopes. All these things are vehicles to bring you uh, to perdition. And so the bottom line is what we hope that the movie does is shines a light on the machinations of the devil and showing people he is the enemy of mankind. And what's going on down in our society right now is just plain out evil. And it's it. And I will say the good news is for people not to never lose hope because Jesus is hope. But I will say that the good news is the devil's time is short. That's why he's so frantic. The devil would never willingly come out of the darkness into the light, but he's doing that right now with all the machinations of things he's doing. And so what do we know? And we also know, by the way, that Jesus says to us very specifically, we're stronger than the devil. We can rebuke 
the darkness. We can do through living a good life and not sinning and being coming holy and, and, and you know, doing all the things that we're supposed to do. Love is much more powerful than hate. You know, we have all these things that we've been taught, but the media has used it against us, saying this is weakness, this is stupidity, Jesus isn't real. So they're willing to believe in the devil, but they're not willing to believe in Jesus. Well, that's a, that's a uh, recipe, in my opinion, for damnation. I mean, it's, people have got to wake up to the sobering reality of the fact that there is a devil and there is a God, and praise God for that. I wouldn't want to be a secular person who is an atheist trying to take on the darkness. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Conversations with Consequences on EWTN Radio. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're hearing all about the new movie Nefarious from the writer and director Carrie Solomon. Carrie, you said a little while ago that progressives don't believe in evil, that they don't believe evil exists, and yet... It, you'd have to be blind and, and deaf and dumb and, and completely unconnected to the world not to see evil in, in all its various manifestations, especially in the in, imagine in the last uh, century where we saw the evil forces of communism and Nazism um, kill hundreds of millions of people. Um, how is it that, where do you think progressives think that all this uh, badness comes from? If it doesn't come from a separate, but a demon or a, a, a natural malevolence? Where does it come from for them? You know, this is the problem with the left, the progressives overall. They never really give you a good answer. They put together this thing like for creation. Okay, so what happened is lightning hit this puddle of chemicals and these rocks collided and then all of a sudden life came forward. So then scientifically we try to do that. A, a million times they've tried to do this over and over and over. There have been studies on it. Nothing ever happens. But they leave the conversation and they move to the next thing. They'll, when you pin them down, they always move to another attacking point. They attack. And so they get you off the subject and they put you on the defense. And unfortunately, uh, people that are believers and conservative allow them to do this. You have to go back to the point. That is not how creation worked. It has never been, it's been proven that it doesn't work that way. Tell me how we evolved. In other words, that we came from apes. Well, okay. Well, how come there are no like half men, half apes? I mean, th there's <laughs> nothing, you know, because in evolution, if that was the case, you'd have that, right? How well, and, you would, and you would see moments of evolution in the present time, right? Like things would of be course. happening. Things would be moving along. I mean, if, if it was exactly as they, as the progressives say. But you got to remember also they have eyes to see, uh, but will not see. Mm -hmm. They have ears to hear, but will not hear. So the problem with this fanaticism, it's almost cultish. You have a uh, in America today, they are, they are saying that seven out of 10 people identify as having some sort of mental condition. Four out of those 10 people believe it's demonic in some way. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. We got 350 million people in America. Four out of 10 percent, that's 140 million people that are thinking that they're having serious problems and no one is talking about it. Mm -hmm. the, yes, okay? this is true. If you're the devil, what do you do? If you're the devil, what do you do? You convince people that evil's not real. And it's just it's something that just happened or whatever analysis. It's just a societal conditioning. Or maybe yes, you blame by, it. Maybe you blame it on religion, right? Right. And which is what they do, obviously. Mm -hmm. The long term goal here is very simple. And I think Catholics especially need to wake up to this. They are coming for us. They are doing exactly. The devil wants to put an end to the church. 
He wants to put an end to Catholics. He wants to put an end to the Jews. He wants to put an end to goodness, righteousness, and every value that is of God. So we have the mockery of the devil. What do we look at? The mockery of the devil is as far. So the divine hour is afternoon. What's the devil's hour? Three o'clock in the morning. Okay, if the if the Lord loves the children, what does the devil do? He kills the children. If the Lord says man shall be man and woman shall be woman, what does he do? He makes women men and men women. Uh, if he says that a man and a woman should not divorce, what does he do? He goes around making divorce. When I was dating, I'll never forget this. It was one of the greatest lessons in my life. When I was dating a woman, uh, you know, just a girl, I had this incredibly lust to have, right? And it was driven, it was driving me. Once I got married, that lust was gone. And I thought to myself, isn't that interesting? <laughs> because what is the devil doing? Because when you're married, it's no longer a sin, right? <laughs> we don't see people don't sensitize themselves to evil anymore. We've been desensitized with this between TV and the movies. They start very slowly. This is so cunning and so insidious. What happens is in the 50s, slowly but surely, you know, we'd start to curse in the movie or show a little bit more flesh in the movie. And we kept moving and he kept selling and selling and selling. And it's the same way homosexuality was sold to the people. You know, Will and Grace on TV is the reason you have homosexuality in America now, because we made the homosexuals look good. I will tell you, I was in the basement of a very uh, powerful producer. Uh, he had his office in his basement in his big fancy mansion. And he did not realize I was a Catholic and he did not realize I was a conservative. And I am telling you, this is a truthful story. And Chuck and I are in there. Chuck's my business partner. And he says, hey. Uh, and he's going to school us. He's going to teach us and how I, we got abortion passed and how we did this. And he starts going into it. And he says, here's what you do on your TV shows. He says, we the first thing we do is we make people love the show. And then what we do is we take the most innocent of the characters in the show. And she's, let's say, a 13-year-old girl. And we have her get raped by a really bad person. So now she's pregnant. And then what happens is we have uh, her parents basically going to throw her into the street because they're Christians and they're not and and they're Christians. <laughs> and then we have her friend who's a Christian at her. You're killing this, you know. And 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 they they take the Christian who's the most loving of people in the real world and turn it into the most hateful of people in the show. And then the, the, the Christians are tearing her to pieces. And so all of a sudden, the kinder, gentler abortion doctor comes to her and says to her, I can help you. You know, there's so many things you can do with your life. You know, this is so terrible. And then she gets the abortion and everybody is cheering the fact that she got the abortion. That is how it, and this guy is telling us. You know what the, I noticed? What I noticed in that binging uh, when I was watching too much TV during COVID um, was that the only relationships that were healthy and pretty and self, you know, mutually, um, mutually sacrificial were the homosexual ones and all these That's different right. shows. Whenever there was a husband and a wife. Well, first of all, the people, the men and women who were dating each other, right? Um, they had horrible relationships and you couldn't imagine them marrying because they didn't even think that way. But then the ones who were married, you can't imagine why they married in the first place. <laughs> There's no love between them. And it's all treachery. And I know, I know I'm painting it with a, with a broad brush, but I was watching it and I was watching it happen. I said, this is how you discredit marriage um, in a whole culture and, and in the young, especially who are always glued to their phones. What? Well, it's a, it's a, it's an absolute truth. It's an absolute truth. Look, 
The problem is we, we have it too good in America. We're about to learn otherwise. People have the complacency now. They think everything is going to go away if they don't pay attention to it. We've pulled ourselves into the Christian ghetto. Mm-hmm. In other words, we've built walls around the lifestyle that we like, and we think that those walls will stop people from getting in. It's like suburban, not- like suburban living, right? We can we can avoid right. the craziness downtown forever, and we can just avoid it, and it's going to go away. It's not going to go away. Mm-hmm. You're watching that why it will not go away. We are headed towards catastrophic, catastrophic results. And you're going to see, by the way, it's everything is spiraling out of control. What the movie does is it points out to people. I have atheists that have gone to this movie and they come out of the movie profoundly affected and basically become believers. And they say, I've got to change my life. This movie is so powerful that I would suggest that people go to the movie Take your friends, take your family, go see the movie. I promise you that it is not scary, but what is scary is the truth of the devil. That will say, and you will change your life. It will enlighten you in every single way. So tell us, Carrie, how can we watch the movie? I mean, you go to a movie theater, just like you normally do. You can go to Fandango to buy tickets. Whoisnefarious.com, you can get uh, tickets there as well. Uh, It's not going to be in the theaters forever, uh, you know, but it is in the theaters now. And I highly suggest, okay. Cardinal Raymond Burke basically endorsed the movie oh, and, yes. Chuck and, and Chuck and myself. So if the Cardinal, who's conservative and is, icon, is an icon in the church, is saying you need to see this movie and that this movie is amazing. And we have to. By the way, I had a friend. Her name is Carol. She was uh, she ran the extras on set and she was also in the movie. And she was going to confession uh, a week ago. And a friend of hers came out of the confessional booth and came over to her and said, the, the priest gave me penance. And she smiles, like, of course. And he says, you know what he gave me? And she's like, no, what? Go see Nefarious. No way. <laughs> I love and I that. Was, <laughs> I, it's unbelievable. So if priests are telling people to go see the movie, what do you know? Unless oh they're gosh. a bad priest, but they're not. This is happening all over the country. Priests are loving this movie. And if a person who's listening to your program has any doubts, go ask your priests if they've seen the movie and whether they should see the movie. And the answer is absolutely yes, because it shows you that there is evil. I did. I did just hear earlier, right before we got on this call, that uh, that Cardinal Burke had endorsed Nefarious, and I I put I hold him in the highest esteem. I think he's the most truth telling, most um, just conscious of everything that's going on in modern culture and and how we have to defend ourselves of all our cardinals of of of, of all the of all the great uh, people of the church uh, he's so for sure if he says nefarious is uh, is a must see then it's a must see and i can't thank you enough Carrie, for joining us today and and i urge all our our listeners to find nefarious in the in the theater near you thank you thank you thank you for having me god bless all of you and uh keep fighting the good fight Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we welcome back to the show Elizabeth Kirk. She is the director of Center of the Center for Law and the Human Person at Catholic University of America, and she's also an associate scholar for the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Welcome back to the show, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me. You've been on before, and we've had wonderful conversations about adoption. You and I are both adoptive moms, and we and and we're 
uh, acknowledging that this month is National Adoption Month. Adoption mm -hmm. is, is a beautiful solution for lots of different uh, problems uh, that occur uh, in life and, and when, children, when children come along. And uh, it's, it's one that I know, in my opinion, and I think in yours, is, is one that, um, that's not as, as widely available as it ought to be and as easily accessible and, and maybe also as prized and as honored as, as we wish it were. Yes, that's right. Um, I think it's an interesting dynamic, actually, that adoption as an institution is one that most Americans, you know, the vast majority of Americans say that they admire. They think it's a noble institution uh, that has a um, important goal, which is, you know, finding a family for uh, a child who needs one. Um, but the reality is that adoption, you know, especially vis-a-vis -vis abortion, is rarely chosen. Um, mm -hmm. We know that the statistics are that for every one infant placed for adoption at birth, uh, 50 are aborted. Um, That's a so, shocking, um, a shocking statistic. Yeah, it really is. And I think, you know, there are a lot of complex factors that, you know, impact women's decision making. It's something I spend a lot of time in my work trying to do. It's something that is especially, you know, a kind of pressing challenge post-Dobbs to think about uh, mm -hmm. how we might um, help more women to see adoption as a meaningful option for an unexpected pregnancy. So you, you mentioned that in your work you've, you've, you've looked at these obstacles that, that we find to adoption, mm -hmm. to, to placing children for adoption, to choosing adoption instead of abortion, for instance. Can you name a couple that, that are especially compelling or, do you, or, or that you think are especially uh, foundational uh, to this issue? Yeah, I think I think in terms of women's decision-making, again, I think it's complicated, but I think there's a number of things that we can kind of point to. One is, I do think, despite the fact that there's a very pro-adoption general sentiment among Americans, I think that there's this kind of subtle or soft anti-adoption bias um, and I think that women who are facing unexpected pregnancies feel that. Uh, one study I read, just a quick story, uh, was of a young woman who told her, you know, her housemate, she was living in a maternity home, that she was planning to parent. And when she came, but she was secretly making an adoption plan. And when she came home from the hospital without her baby, she told her housemates that DCF, you know, child welfare had taken her child for suspected abuse because she thought that was a more acceptable story than admitting that she had placed her child for adoption. So I think there, there is this, this anti-adoption bias. You know, many people report that they feel there's a kind of shame associated with it. There's a narrative of ab abandonment that, you know, placing a child for adoption is, is unnatural or something a bad mother would do. Uh, there's also a lack of education. Many people conflate adoption with the foster care system. And so they think that placing a child for adoption means their child will go into the system and they don't realize that they have agency, that they get to pick the parents who will take their child home from the hospital, that it, it's not at all connected with the child welfare system. Uh, so, so these are some of the things that I think impact women's decision-making. Do you think there's think, an element of, of women, um, mothers, feeling um, a fear that they will worry about the child for the rest of, of their lives, not knowing um, if the child is happy or unhappy. And I know that that's a, 
that's a that's a strange thing to think about when you're when the other option is to end the child's life. But maybe that seems safer in a sense for them. I do think it's that's the case. I think there's two things going on there. One is, you know, there's again a, a kind of lack of understanding of contemporary practices of adoption. So they're they're thinking of a kind of former way where a child was whisked away. They didn't know what happened to it. They didn't know how it was doing. That couldn't be farther from the truth about contemporary practices of adoption, where open adoption is the norm, uh, you know, rather than the kind of secrecy and shame. But I think, you know, your point raises a kind of deeper thing, which is I, I do think some women are meant, you know, probably all women, of course, um, do have a sort of um, it, it, abortion just seems like an easier uh, option, right? Because it, it resolves the situation. She doesn't have to be pregnant. She doesn't sort of have to a- admit or acknowledge her motherhood. Mm-hmm. And adoption, you know, of course, doesn't take that away. Abortion doesn't either, as we know. But um, in the moment, it seems like an easier option for women. Yeah, I, I think maybe giving birth, um, having that whole long pregnancy and giving birth at the time may feel to the woman that it leaves more, many more scars upon her or many, many more signs of her motherhood that an abortion seems like something you, you've erased the, the issue. While you and I both know, having worked with women who've been hurt by, by abortion, that the marks that abortion leaves might be less visible to the outside viewer, but inside are very, very, very strong and very deep, no, on the woman who suffers an abortion. That's right. And I think, and the other piece of that is, is perhaps not really realizing the healing potential that adoption has, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in contrast, I think many women, um, especially women who, uh, you know, do do kind of take ownership and agency and are able to kind of see distinctly the good of their child as opposed to their own good and and choose adoption like they there's you know they have a kind of greater sense of, of peace about their decision um, as difficult as, as we have to admit that it is in, in the moment what about adoption culture what about the culture uh, out in society that supports the idea of adoption um, I we, we alluded to that already but uh, for instance, when I went to adopt um, our daughter from China, we I went in a big adoption group, and everyone else in the group, almost everyone else in the group, were couples who were uh, very uh, Christian, Protestant Christians, and had come to this uh, decision with um, a lot, like a lot of support from their parish. I guess it's not a parish, from their church community, mm-hmm. uh, and from from the from their um, from from their tradition, from their Christian tradition. Uh, that's a beautiful, I thought that that was a beautiful thing, something I didn't really experience as a Catholic. Uh, I came to it I, uh, with a sense of vocation, but in a much more private way. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think, I mean, we see this especially, I think, in foster care, that, that churches and faith communities play an, an incredibly important role in recruiting and retaining foster and adoptive parents. And um, in some ways, this is just kind of natural because churches themselves are communities, right? And adoptive families often, especially if they're adopting older children or children with special needs or um, children who've experienced trauma, um, they they need those kind of wraparound services and, and communities of support. And churches are, are sort of 
you know, <laughs> ready to, to do that. That's, a, that's exactly what they do. Um, and so I do think there's for many and Christians in particular, I think there's a strong connection between so many of the beautiful teachings of our faith, right? We're all saved uh, in a certain sense by through adoption as sons and daughters of God. And so we have this beautiful way of speaking about it. But I think in general there, the, again, I think there's this, um, very strong, uh, public perception of adoption. And so it's something that's, it's respected. Uh, it's just really not chosen very often, either by women or, or by people who welcome children into their family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I, when my husband and I adopted, we didn't see, we didn't receive a lot of support really, uh, from, from our, what, from our circles of acquaintance and, and, and friends and, and some and even, I, yeah. and some were yeah. even negative about it. Uh, f- for something that we felt was uh, sort of a win-win-win <laughs> for our family, for the child, for for society, uh, but we didn't feel that kind of support, and it's troubled me ever since. And and it troubles me because I would like, I would like there to be a lot of support in everyone's hearts for for this beautiful um, solution to some of the world's greatest problems. Yeah, well, I do. I think I agree that that. For many people that what I call the kind of soft bias, you know, they say it's this beautiful thing. And many, you know, as adoptive parents, I, I often hear, oh, you're so generous. You know, like we we performed this great act of charity. Um, and, you know, and it, that itself reveals a kind of um, implicit bias that there's something sort of strange about adoption. Right. Um, and, and again, I mean, I think the statistics are something like only 2% of Americans actually do adopt children. So even if people give lip service to it being a good institution, there is this dynamic where it's often thought of as a kind of second best Mm -hmm. solution. Well, and even we know that many, many couples would love to adopt, but the children just are not available. Or maybe I'm wrong, maybe the children are available, but they're in the foster care system or available in ways that the couples who are searching for children don't find uh, to be their path. Yeah, I mean, I think for, for newborns, the, 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 the ratio is flipped. I mean, there's something like 40 families waiting for every available newborn. And, you know, I think there we have, we have to see the impact of abortion, right? Mm-hmm. If a million children are being aborted, we, we, you know, there's plenty of families waiting in line to adopt each one of those children. Um, in foster care, of course, there are children waiting to be adopted. Um, and so, but there, you know, it, we, I think we can lament that, but there are two different situations. I think it's not difficult to understand, especially given the lack of support you mentioned, why many prospective adoptive parents who feel able to welcome a newborn don't feel able to welcome an older child who bears the trauma of neglect or abuse or who's been bouncing around the foster care system for years. Mm-hmm. What about, and what about racial differences? Many couples are um, scared of adopting across racial lines. What do you think, how, how big do you think that impact is? Yeah, I mean, I think th- this is a question and I think, uh, you know, it's, it's something that uh, is, is quite delicate in certain communities and we see that certain communities, you know, simply do not place children for adoption at all um, because it's, it's seen as the sort of dilution of ethnicity or, or, you know, traditions and culture. Um, you know, my perspective really is, is that, you know, children who need a family need a family, <laughs> you know? Um, and so, um, you know, I, I, while I think it's important to honor 
any adopted child's heritage and, you know, ethnic traditions. And I think those are beautiful things. I mean, I have a daughter who's part Finnish, <laughs> um, really? you know, and, and we le- read fairy tales from Finland together to, to honor that part of her, you know, biological history. Um, so, but I, but I think it's something that adoptive parents need to be aware of, but I don't think it should ever limit the available um, loving or safe home for a child. Mm-hmm. No, I, I completely agree with you. It's uh, I, I'm I'm always saddened when I see the, the those racial barriers uh, pop up, and sometimes from the side of the adoption um, authorities or the adoption agencies, right? As it um, as it seems to me unfortunate, because as you say, the children when a child needs a home, that child needs a family, and and it the, those racial differences shouldn't shouldn't stop us, even though. They are real, and they they do have consequences, as I've experienced in my own life my, with my Chinese daughter. In a minor sense, but I imagine that as she grows older, those things will be more um, will will come more to the forefront for us. Elizabeth, you recently published a, a paper with the Lozier Institute on the role of adoption in these in this time post jobs. Can you tell us about that, and what was the what was the point of your of your research and paper? Sure. So, you know, adoption does have a kind of a renewed vigor or application post Dobbs. We don't yet know the impact of Dobbs on women's decision makings, whether they'll simply travel, you know, to regimes that protect abortion access or whether they'll uh, choose to continue a pregnancy. But it's I think it's worth talking about the role that adoption can play. And so what I did in this in this paper is just to recommend a number of pro-adoption initiatives that could be appropriate for either the federal legislature or states to consider uh, that would promote adoption. So some examples would be enhancing the adoption tax credit, which of course makes it, you know, benefits adopted parents um, by, by defraying the exorbitant costs of adoption, but it can also benefit um, the birth mother indirectly, um, you know, by, by allowing some of her expenses to be covered Uh, and just sending a strong public message that we think adoption is something that's good. Hmm. Um, other ideas that I suggested were like um, funding options counseling. So making sure that all of those medical professionals, hospitals, pregnancy resource centers are adequately trained to inform and support women who might want to learn about an adoption plan. Uh, you and I just, you know, we also talked about support services. I think funding post-adoption support services for both birth parents and adopted parents, you know, acknowledging adoption doesn't end at placement. It's a lifetime connection and birth parents and adopted parents continue to need support as they navigate um, a lifetime with that with that child. So there, there's a number of different, uh, you know, uh, those are just some of them that I recommended. Well, let me ask you if a woman, uh, a young woman especially, is contemplating abortion versus adoption, How does she know what to do next? Like, where does she find that information? And is that something that that could be facilitated legally and on a state-by-state basis or federally? Yeah, I mean, the legal it varies by state. But, but you know, the one thing I would, one organization that I think very highly of is called, um, is called uh, Brave Love. And, you know, it's, it's bravelove.org, I think, is, is their website. And they do a tremendous job of, of informing women about what adoption involves. They have 
many, many beautiful video testimonies of women who have chosen adoption and what it's like for them. They have support groups around the country. And so it might be just a good entry in a kind of non-threatening um, way to learn more about adoption uh, and, and then to find somebody in your state or your you know community uh, that facilitates adoptions. What a wonderful title, uh, I mean, uh, name for that organization, right? Brave Love. It is a, it is a very brave love that gives birth instead of aborts. And maybe yeah, getting yeah, absolutely maybe getting braver every day, right? <laughs> the more the the abortion um, juggernaut keeps keeps rolling along. Yeah. Um, how absolutely. wonderful! How wonderful that 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 exists. That your work exists, Elizabeth. Thank you for joining us today on Conversations with Consequences. Elizabeth yeah, is thank the, you so much for having me. Elizabeth is the director of uh, the Center for Law and the Human Person at Catholic University of America and an associate scholar for the Charlotte Lozier Institute. Thanks for doing uh, this. Uh, thanks for talking to me about adoption during National Adoption Month. Thank you. Take care. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a joy for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Depending upon where you live, that conversation may be different because those in New England, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Nebraska will hear the gospel of the seventh Sunday of Easter, while those everywhere else will hear what those in the states I just mentioned heard on Thursday, the gospel of the Lord Jesus' ascension. The reason for the confusion is that in 1998-1999, bishops in most regions of the United States decided to transfer the ascension from the 40th day after Easter when it took place to the seventh Sunday, believing that if they didn't, Catholics who seldom attend on holy days of obligation would always miss celebrating liturgically this pivotal event in the Lord's earthly life. Ironically, however, in making the decision to move the ascension to the 43rd day after Easter, the bishops in those provinces were preventing Catholics from hearing Jesus' words on the importance of Christian unity from the 17th chapter of St. John's Gospel, a third of which is proclaimed on the seventh Sunday each year. So for us, as we prepare for this Sunday, we can focus a little bit on both Gospels, since Jesus is our interlocutor in every prayerful conversation with the Gospel, and therefore everything is intrinsically coherent. We'll take the Gospel for the seventh Sunday of Easter first, since it happened 43 days earlier in time on Holy Thursday. In it, we have the awesome privilege not just to eavesdrop on, but enter into the prayer Jesus made to God the Father the night he was betrayed. Jesus began by asking God the Father to glorify him so that he could glorify the Father. That mutual glory would happen, Jesus said, through his giving his life for us so that we might have life everlasting. He defined eternal life as ultimately knowing God. Knowing, not in the sense of acquaintances or even great friends, but biblically, knowing someone in a totally committed spousal way. That mutual glory would happen, Jesus continued, by his accomplishing the work the Father had given him to do, which was to save the human race through his passion, death, and resurrection. That glory would also happen, he said, by his being glorified in us, the church, through our continuation of that mission. Jesus told God the Father that while he is coming to him, we would remain in the world. So he prayed for us for four things, as we see later in John 17. First, that we may be one, just as Jesus and the Father are one. 
That way, Jesus said, everyone would know that the Father sent the Son and loves us just like he loves the Son. That's an incredible prayer, that our communion with each other would resemble the communion in the Blessed Trinity. That's why prayer and work for church unity are so important for any true disciple of Jesus and why it's so important for the church to celebrate the seventh Sunday of Easter. Second, that God the Father protect us from the evil one. This is what Jesus taught us to pray at the end of the Our Father, that we may not be led into temptation, but delivered from evil. God the Father does protect us while still leaving us free, meaning we must choose to entrust ourselves to him rather than presumptuously think we can convert with evil with no consequences. Jesus says during John 17 that no one can take us from the Father's hand, but we can leave that hand. So we must choose lovingly and confidently to remain there. Third, Jesus prays that God the Father make us saints. He asks that God the Father consecrate us in the truth of God's word. That word consecrate means to sanctify us. And hearing and living God's word is that means. The fourth flows from the first three, that the love with which the Father loves the Son may be in us and Jesus in us. Jesus wants us to be filled with his love, which means filled with him, with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, since God is love. This is what happens when we're truly united with God and each other, when we're free of the evil one, when we become holy as God is holy. That conversation between Jesus and the Father is ultimately one of the most consequential conversations that has ever occurred. Jesus wants us to cooperate with that prayer for unity, for protection, for sanctity, and for love. But we see in John 17 that he prays not only for us, but for those who will believe in me through the word of the apostles and their successors, that they too might receive that great gift. And this brings us to the gospel of the ascension. I'm recording this brief homily from Jerusalem, where I'm leading a pilgrimage of students from Columbia University, where I'm the Catholic chaplain. The place of the Lord's ascension in the Mount of Olives is presently a Muslim mosque. But every year in the ascension, the caretakers allow Catholic Christians to celebrate Mass there for 24 hours around the clock, a devotion led by the Franciscans who are caretakers of so many of the Christian holy sites. Last year on pilgrimage, I was able in the morning to celebrate Mass in the little shrine marking the spot from which Jesus ascended. I look forward to the revisiting that spot later today. The church ponders in the gospel for the ascension this year what is called Jesus' great commission from St. Matthew, the words Jesus gave to the 11 apostles right before he was taken to heaven. Jesus praised the Father in John 17 for having given him authority over all people. And now 43 days later, he said to the apostles, all power, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always until the end of time. Jesus was saying that his power and authority in heaven and on earth would be exercised through the church, through the sacraments, beginning with baptism, through the word of God as his teaching was brought to all the nations, through the moral life by means of observing all that he commanded, through a full-time communion of life and love with God with us, who promised to be with us until the end of time. Jesus was sending out the church. He was sending us out to continue his preaching, to continue his sanctifying work through the sacraments, to continue his charity, loving others as he has loved us, and to continue his communion, remaining with God, and he is with us until the end of time. This is the way in which Jesus' prayer for union, protection, sanctification, and love will be brought to fulfillment.
The Solemnity Ascension is an opportunity for us to examine how seriously we take the mission Jesus gave us of trying to bring him to everyone we know. Jesus ascended into heaven to take the training wheels off of our Christian life. He trusted us enough to entrust to us the continuation of his saving mission. But he didn't leave us alone in the fulfillment of that task. He gave us the Holy Spirit. As he was preparing to ascend, he told the apostles not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, when in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, he said. The work of proclaiming the gospel to every creature, of entering into the life of God through the sacraments and moral life, of growing in holiness, love, and union, is not a work we can accomplish on our own. The Holy Spirit is sent to us to bring about that moral miracle. Ascension Thursday begins the church's annual decenarium, or ten days of prayer, in anticipation of the feast day of Pentecost, which we'll celebrate next Sunday. It's a time for us, like the first apostles, to huddle around Mary, praying and waiting for the outpouring of this divine gift, who will help us glorify God the Father and God the Son, and with tongues of fire to proclaim with ardent love that God is still with us, sanctifying and saving us. And so, whether in our parishes we'll be celebrating this week in the seventh Sunday of Easter or the Ascension, it's fitting to be praying together with the whole church this prayer for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, who gives the church and the world rebirth. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, enkindle in us the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and we shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. My prayers from Jerusalem. God bless you all. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy, and you go with our prayers. 